Welcome to Defenders, the teaching class of Dr. William Lane Craig. Today, an excursus on natural theology, part 28. For more resources from Dr. Craig, go to reasonablefaith.org. We've been looking at epistemological objections to belief in God. The word epistemology comes from the Greek word episteme, which means knowledge. And so these are objections based upon um, the fact that it, God cannot be known to exist for some reason or other. Last time we looked at the first objection, the objection of verificationism, which held that the question of God's existence is meaningless. It's neither true nor false to say that God exists because uh, the question of God's existence is simply a meaningless question. And we saw that that verificationist viewpoint was based upon a principle of meaning that was in the first place completely implausible and then, to make matters worse, self-refuting. And that therefore verificationism has been virtually universally rejected among philosophers of science and epistemologists today. We now want to turn to a second uh, type of objection, the, what I call the presumption of atheism. That atheism is in some way a sort of default position that doesn't require any evidence in favor of um, that position. First would be the attempt of many contemporary atheists to redefine the meaning of atheism. Atheism traditionally is the view that God does not exist. Uh, atheism is a position that there is no God. But very often atheists today, at least on a popular level, will put a different spin on atheism. They'll say something like this, well, no one can prove a universal negative, like there is no God. And they think that because atheism is a universal negative, that somehow excuses them from needing any evidence for God's uh, non-existence. Since um, uh, it's in a universal negative that there is no God and universal negatives cannot be proved, um, it's impossible to prove that God does not exist and therefore, as atheists, they don't need to prove such a thing. Now, not only is it obviously false that you can't prove a universal negative. Uh, all you have to do is show a self-contradiction in some idea to prove that it uh, has no instances. For example, uh, the idea that there is a married bachelor. It's easy to prove that there are no married bachelors because that's a self-contradictory concept and therefore a married bachelor cannot exist. So in fact, you can prove universal negatives. But the more important point, I think, here is that this claim by the atheist is really an admission on his part that it's impossible to prove atheism. Atheism involves a universal negative. He says you can't prove a universal negative, and therefore atheism is unprovable. So that it turns out to be the atheist who is believing a belief or holding a belief for which there is and can be no evidence on his own view. So this argument, if 
far from being some sort of defense for atheism, ought to be a part of the Christian's apologetic arsenal. Uh, it would show that if the atheist is right that you can't prove a universal negative, then atheism is simply unjustifiable um, and therefore uh, cannot be uh, reasonably held. So, what many atheists try to do at this point is to revise the definition of atheism so that it is no longer the view that God does not exist. Instead, they say, atheism is just the absence of belief in God. Anyone who lacks belief in God counts as an atheist. Um, now, this is, again, not only contrary to the traditional meaning of the word, but when you think about it, it's really quite hopeless as a definition. From this new definition, atheism is no longer a viewpoint or a position, um, as it is traditionally. Traditionally, atheism is the position there is no God. But on this new redefinition, atheism is no longer a position or a truth claim. It's just a description of somebody's psychological state. It's the psychological state of lacking a belief in God. And as such, atheism is therefore neither true nor false. It's just a psychological state. And even babies on this definition turn out to be atheists because they don't have the psychological state of believing in God. But that's surely absurd. I mean, can you imagine the following conversation between two young mothers? Julie, I just heard that you had twins. Congratulations. Yes, thank you, but you know, it's so sad. What's sad? Well, they're both atheists. <laughs> on this definition, even our cat, Angel, turns out to be an atheist because I'm sure that Angel has never thought about the question of whether or not God exists. So all of this would still leave us wondering whether or not there is a God, whether or not God exists. You can call this view atheism or schmatheism. It doesn't matter what you call it. The question is, does God exist? Is there a God? And anyone who says that God does not exist, even if you call that schmatheism rather than atheism, uh, still um, we can call upon him to give us some arguments or some evidence for his position. So this uh, attempt to get off the hook of giving arguments for atheism merely by redefining it, I think, is uh, utterly unavailing. Any discussion of this first attempt to avoid having to give evidence for atheism? Uh, just for the listeners and anyone in this room who hasn't seen it, I was also really struggling with this idea of atheism being the default position. Uh -huh. And I thought a great conversation that you had with a, another atheist, I think his name was Dr. Shook, I think, yes. I believe. And was he was basically... University of British Columbia. Yeah, and he said something like, uh, I'm a, I believe that nature exists. And he had no 
reason to think that there's anything more than that. And yeah. that was kind of like a presumption of atheism. Like, I don't have to prove that there's something more than nature. It's clear that nature exists. Why go any further? So he called himself an atheist, and you challenged him by saying, well, doesn't that make you an agnostic? You don't know that there's anything more. You're just saying, and he gave an example of a stock market and whether to invest in the stock market or not. And you hear all these arguments for investing, and he doesn't really think that they're good. And then, and then, you, and then you came back with, well, that just means you don't know whether the stock market's going to go up or whether it's going to go down. It doesn't mean that it isn't going to go up or it isn't going to go down. You just have to be an agnostic about it. Right. I just thought that was a really good conversation to good. bring out what's going on. So. Okay, I'm glad that that was helpful. Um, there are several types of non-theism uh, traditionally. Non-theism could be atheism, which is the belief that God does not exist. Or you could be agnostic, which is the position, I don't believe that God exists, but I don't believe that God does not exist. In the same way, I don't believe the stock market is going to rally, but I don't believe it's going to fall either. I don't know what the stock market's going to do. That's agnosticism. The other position that would be possible would be a kind of uh, non-cognitivism, which is the old verificationism, which says it's a meaningless question uh, whether God exists or not. All of these would be varieties of non-theism. So when the unbeliever says that he doesn't believe in God or that he, do he lacks this psychological state of believing in God, we still want to know, well, are you an atheist who says there is no God? Are you an agnostic who is just undecided about the matter? Or are you a verificationist who believes that there's no cognitive content to this question? And I think you can see that all of these persons will have the same psychological state of lacking belief in God, but that doesn't answer the question then of how we should assess the fact of God's existence. Yes, Cody. Yeah, so one thing I like to do in these conversations is because I find that people get, the people I talk to get very hung up on these words, atheism, agnostic. So what I do is I'll just sort of write down, you know, those, all those words, theism, and then I'll give the definitions for them. And then I'll just erase the words and leave the definitions ah. and say, okay, so which one do you fall under? And it's amazing how much they start to struggle to give me an answer at that wow. point. Because what? Because see, because you find out what's going on is they get attached to the word atheism, yeah, and so yeah. but once you give the definitions, but take out the words and say, I love call that whatever because you want. You're right. People are offended or they get defensive when you say you're misusing this label. They say I have a right to call myself what I want. So, uh, yeah. But what what Cody does, you see, is for atheism, he would say uh, God does not exist, and then for agnosticism, I don't know whether God exists. Non-cognitivism, it is, it is meaningless to affirm or deny God's existence. And then just erase the labels and say, okay, which of these propositions do you affirm? And that's a wonderful way to just get past the question of labels. Very good. Thank you. Taylor. Just for a pragmatic view on trying to define atheism or atheosis. Atheist? Is it uh, pragmatic to actually try to debate the definition at all, just to concentrate on the the subject matter instead, or do you think, for the purposes of 
uh, evangelism well, that we should I, I be talking about. Well, I do think about. it's very important to try to understand what your conversation partner believes, because there's just a huge difference between an atheist and an agnostic. The agnostic makes no knowledge claim at all, but the atheist is making a knowledge claim. He's saying God does not exist, and that is a knowledge claim that requires an argument or justification in the same way that the claim God does exist. So I think it's very important to identify exactly what your conversation partner really does believe, however it's labeled. And I, I think as Cody indicated, some of these folks may not really know what they believe. Uh, they may have just used words, and this may actually promote some self-examination um, on their part to say, well, do I really believe this or, or not? Well, it was, it was more of a, a question about, should we get caught up on, on the definitions of words rather than subject matters? That, no. That was more of a, okay. Right. My experience is that there are many people who don't want God to exist. Yeah. So they prefer a life void of what they understand God to be. Therefore, they really, they say they're atheists, but they don't want to get into the quagmire of sorting through all of that. They say, look, my life is fine the way it is. I don't think there's a God. I don't want there to be a God. Right. So move on is where I think many yeah. of them feel. Yes, and I don't have a label for that position. Uh, the philosopher Thomas Nagel says that. Uh, he says, it's not just that I don't believe that God exists. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want to live in a universe like that. And he said, I'm troubled by the fact that many of my most brilliant and gifted colleagues in philosophy believe that there is a God, and he finds that disturbing because he doesn't want there to be someone like that. It, so you're, you're quite right. And, and in dealing with a person like that, I think we need to maybe take a step back and talk about the existential implications of atheism, um, the absurdity of life without God. And here you can appeal to French existentialist atheists and others who have recognized how the implications of this worldview are, are really Dreadful. Yeah, I think the alternatives of their not belief in God is very severe. So it's worth the exercise of exploring that. Yeah. But I, I will just comment on one thing. As okay. you know, my brother was an atheist, and as he was close to death, he he said, "I don't understand why this is happening to me." Mm. Which to me is saying, I mean, if he's truly an atheist, why not? You know, so it, it just... Isn't that odd? Isn't that odd? expected there to be a purpose or a pr Yeah, or it was very puzzling and, and, and depressing and why, why? And, and I thought that opened up, you know, yeah. at least a thought for further how you could deal with that with another person. Then there yeah. has to, you know, I think deep, I guess that's the God hold. Yeah, hold. That's, yeah that's right. That there's that... that, that that's a very poignant example of how deep that sort of God consciousness is, that he would say, why is this happening to me? That, that's very interesting. Yes, back here. I think that when you're talking about 
any subject matter, you really have to be honest with yourself. And I think that's especially true of philosophy. I think we have to realize that truth, you know, whether it's in mathematics or physics or, you know, things like that, truth exists independently of our desires. For Mm. example, I can walk out my door and, you know, I could drive or drive a car around or something like that and I can bemoan being stuck in traffic and I say, oh, I wish gravity didn't exist. But my mere (laughs) desire to temporarily suspend the law of gravity so that I'm not stuck in a traffic jam will not make my car start to levitate. And so my point is that the same is true with regarding does the question, does God exist? I can wish that God does not exist, but if he does, he does so independently of my desire for him not to exist. Right. And it's the, it's interesting because the people who espouse this belief, I don't want God to exist, it's like, well, don't you want your life to have some kind of meaning? And it's just, you know, it's yeah. kind of interesting because it's like they almost, they want to have their cake and eat it too. They yes. want their life yeah. to have meaning, but... You know, if there's no ultimate justice, if there's an absence of ultimate justice, then there's really an absence of ultimate meaning as well. Yes. And those two things, ultimate justice and ultimate meaning, can only be found, those two only exist if there is a God who is all-powerful. Only an all-powerful being can ensure those things. So an all-powerful being would, by definition, be God if nothing is greater. So. It's just yes, I, I agree, and I think uh, the example that Cindy gave as well as Thomas Nagel indicate that it's not only theists who can be accused of wishful thinking, but atheists too can fall into this trap, as you say, of thinking that the world has to conform to their desires. Um, yes, Bruce. Uh, in regards to, to uh, Cindy's comment, I, uh, I just in my mind coined the term displacement uh, People who are uh, atheists want to make themselves God till they come to a point in life where they realize they're not, <laughs> mm-hmm. like at the point of death or sickness, and that they're not in control. And mm-hmm. then the questions come up. Yeah, why? Yeah, yeah. I hope so. All right, anyone else on this question of uh, redefinition of atheism? Yes, Bobby. Um, one of the things I've noticed, and some of y'all have also probably noticed, back to definitions, is I think atheists or agnostics are so desperate to avoid being labeled, they will mix and mash these definitions to the point of mm. saying, I'm an agnostic atheist, oh. whatever that means. So <laughs> they, they have this, they matrix it out and say, well, I'm over here a little bit. And it's just, it's pretty interesting. Yeah, I've heard, heard that, that same blend <laughs> too. And I think that's just a lack of clarity <laughs> right. in their thinking. Right. Um, yeah, right. Pretty interesting. And again, as Cody, I think, so nicely emphasized, don't argue about labels. Just say, well, what is that? Tell me what that belief is. What is the position here? Yes, Brad. First of all, I don't think cats are atheists. (laughs) They're Uh demons. Oh, Brad, no, 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 no. Just thought I'd bring that up. Our cat is named Angel. (laughs) With good reason. And... I, I was just wondering, in your view and your experience, do you see that if someone takes a position that says there is no God, yeah. um, is it easier to discuss things with them than if they go, I don't know and I don't care? Well, certainly than if they don't care. That's very true. Uh, 
as I said the other day, sometimes that's called apathyism. There's a label for that. That's very difficult to deal with. But with the, well, my professor, Norman Geisler, differentiated between two kinds of agnosticism. Ordinary agnosticism, which is just a confession of ignorance. I don't know whether God exists. And what he called ornery agnosticism, which is that no one can know that God exists. It cannot be known that God exists. And the ordinary agnostic is open-minded and I think easy to deal with. The ornery agnostic is actually making, again, a claim. He's claiming it cannot be known that God exists. And therefore, that requires some evidence or argument. We need to hear his justification for that claim that it cannot be known that God exists. So it de depends on what kind of agnostic you're, you're dealing with. All right, let's move on to the next epistemological uh, objection for the presumption of atheism. Um, and this is the view that atheism, um, that is to say the belief that God does not exist, atheism on the traditional definition, is the default position. You should assume that something does not exist unless and until you have evidence that it does exist. So in the absence of evidence, you should believe that God does not exist. You hold that something doesn't exist unless and until you have evidence for it. So this is an attempt to place a differential burden of proof. The atheist on this view has no burden of proof. His is the default position. It's the theist who carries the whole burden of proof because he asserts that God does exist. Well, I think there are uh, two very significant problems with this um, position. The first problem is the one that was pointed out to me by an Australian um, criminologist. He says there's a saying that is beloved among criminologists, which is that absence of evidence does not equal evidence of absence. The absence of evidence does not equal evidence of absence. Uh, as a criminologist, he knew that just because you didn't have any positive evidence, say, that the butler was the murderer, that doesn't mean he wasn't the murderer. The absence of evidence isn't uh, necessarily evidence of absence. And I think that that's very evident. Uh, take, for example, the claim that there is a flea in this room. Now, we don't have any evidence that there is a flea in this room. Does that therefore imply that there is no flea in the room? Well, I think obviously not. There could very well be a flea in this room, even though we don't have any evidence of it. So the absence of evidence is not necessarily evidence of absence. Now, on the other hand, suppose somebody were to say, well, there's an elephant in this room. Uh, in that case, the absence of evidence would be, I think, evidence of absence. If, if we have no evidence that there's an elephant in this room, that's pretty good evidence that there is no elephant in the room. So what's the difference between the case of the flea and the case of the elephant? Why in the one case is the absence of evidence not evidence of absence, but in the other case, the absence of evidence is evidence for absence? Well, I think um, there are two conditions uh, under which 
absence of evidence is evidence of absence. First of all would be that we have fully canvassed the area where the evidence should be found. We have fully canvassed the area where the evidence should be found. If you haven't even uh, looked into the room, there might be an elephant in there because you've never looked at the evidence. You've never sought for it. Or if you examine the evidence very superficially, um, you might not simply have discovered the evidence for the thing in question. So the first condition um, under which the absence of evidence will count as evidence of absence is that you have fully canvassed the area where the evidence should be found. Now translate that to the case of God. That will mean that you have done a thorough and in-depth investigation of the arguments of natural theology for God's existence. Um, and that will be necessary in order for the absence of evidence uh, to count as evidence of absence of God. You have fully canvassed uh, all of the arguments for natural theology in depth before you can judge that there is no evidence for God's existence. Secondly, the second condition would be if the entity did exist, then we should expect to have more evidence of its existence than that which we have. The second condition is that if the entity did exist, then we should expect to have more evidence of its existence than what we in fact have. So if there were a flea in this room, should we expect to have more evidence of its existence than that which we have? Well, obviously not. We don't have any sort of flea detector that would let us know that he's here. On the other hand, if there were an elephant in this room, then we would expect to have more evidence visually and olfactory evidence of the smell of the, the, the elephant and so forth uh, that he exists. So the absence of evidence in that case is good evidence that there is no elephant. Now again, translate this into the question of God's existence. What this would mean is that if God did exist, then we should have more evidence of his existence than that which we do have. And is that true? Uh, if there were a God, should we have more evidence of his existence than the existence of a contingent universe? The beginning of the universe at some point in the finite past before which it did not exist? The fine-tuning of the universe to an incomprehensible precision for the existence of intelligent life? The existence of a realm of objective moral values and duties? The resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth from the dead? If God existed, should we expect to have more evidence than that? Well, that's far from obvious. Uh, it, it seems to me that what the atheist uh, is saying then is that he is able to predict the sort of evidence that God would give if God existed. And once again, we're thrown back onto the arguments of natural theology. I would say that we have very good evidence for God's existence. Uh, and that there's no reason uh, to think that if God existed that we should have uh, more evidence of his existence than that which we do have. So it will be a question once again of how good are these arguments. So under what conditions then does the absence of evidence count as 
evidence for the non-existence of something. Two conditions. First, you fully canvass the area where the evidence should be found. And then secondly, that if the entity did exist, then you should expect to have more evidence of its existence than what you do in fact have. And I don't think that those conditions are met in the case of theism, um, and therefore I'm unpersuaded by this uh, argument. I don't think that the theist and the atheist have differential burdens of proof at all. Uh, both are making knowledge claims and both have to support them. Any comment or question about that point? Yes, Kevin, down here in the front. So when an atheist asks you about Bertrand Russell's uh, orbiting teapot, how okay. do you respond? Sometimes atheists will say, what about the hypothesis that there is a teapot in orbit around the Earth? We don't have any evidence of such a teapot orbiting the Earth, so isn't that good evidence that it doesn't exist? In this case, the absence of evidence, they would say, is evidence of absence. And I think it's a bad illustration, Kevin. I think we've got boatloads of evidence that there is no such teapot orbiting the Earth. Uh, we know that no Soviet or American cosmonauts have carried teapots into space and discharged them out of their space capsules. Moreover, no extraterrestrial would bring teapots to the Earth in space because you can't pour tea in space out of a teapot. You might need to suck it out of a tube, but in a non-gravity situation, it's pointless to have a teapot. So I think we have every reason to think that there is not a teapot orbiting the Earth. And it's not just the absence of evidence for it. We have good reasons to think that there is no teapot orbiting the Earth. Cody. Yeah, so I find sometimes what happens in these conversations is sometimes the atheist, I think, misuses the term proof because when they say things like, because a lot of times they'll use examples to me like, you know, the teapot or even things like Bigfoot or something. They'll say, now prove that they don't exist. And I think when they say proof, mm. what they mean is they mean like prove beyond all possible doubt, which is, you know, as, as we all know, is, is a ridiculous standard. And, you know, by that logic, of course, I couldn't even be a theist by that logic, which I point out to them because I would say, well, I mean, even I wouldn't claim to know that God exists, you know, with absolute certainty where I couldn't possibly be wrong. So, but if I can say that it's re beyond a reasonable doubt, well, then couldn't atheism be like that? So Yeah, exactly, Cody. There, there you just have to go back to square one with them and, and point out that you're offering arguments for God's existence. You're not claiming you can offer sort of mathematical proof. And I think we have very good reasons very good evidence to think that Bigfoot doesn't exist, that the Loch Ness Monster doesn't exist, or the abominable snowman. Uh, there's good evidence that those things don't exist. And so we want to hear from the atheist, well, what's his arguments and evidence that God does not exist? We're quite willing to give our arguments for God's existence, so I think we have every right to ask the atheist, well, give us your arguments as to why you think God does not exist. Okay, one more question and then we'll close. Yes. In a way, theology is kind of like, I would say, astronomy or cosmology, as you would put it. Be, and the way, reason I say that is because the less we know about a given subject matter, if we don't even know the scope or the size of something exactly, like we don't know the size of the universe, 
the more we have to rely on things like indirect observation, like it's kind of the same with the Earth's core. We kind of, nobody has seen it in person, just because obviously the conditions are not suitable for human life, but we have to rely on indirect observation to see what it's like. And I think the same is true with the supernatural realm to some extent as with astronomy and things like that. Just as I think that's absolutely right, and that's by the very nature of the case. God is not a physical idol that you could observe with the five senses. We're talking here about a transcendent personal mind beyond the universe, and what you will see will be, as you say, the fingerprints, as it were, of the creator in his creation. It will be indirect evidence of his existence, such as plays a key role in astronomy, say the evidence for a black hole, uh, or in high-level physics for certain theoretical particles and things of that sort. They're posited because of their explanatory value for that which we do observe and see. All right, with that, let's close today with a benediction. And now may the God of all grace, who has forgiven all our sins in the blood of Jesus Christ and cleansed us from every iniquity, fill your life this week with the knowledge of his grace and his will to do that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. The copyright for the content of this recording is held by Dr. William Lane Craig. For more, go to reasonablefaith.org.